0: Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies, and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard. I'm the director of ECFR. And this week, we're going to be talking about Iran. It is now 40 years since the Islamic Revolution changed not only the face of Iran, but in fact, the politics of the entire Middle East region. And it's a revolution that has had huge implications for the uh, Islamic Republic's relationships with all of its neighbours and the other great powers, and um, in many ways has set the uh, the, the the tone for um, quite unusual development in Iran compared to the rest of the region. Um, we're going to be talking about that. But also talking about some of the events which have put Iran in the news this week, the surprise resignation and impossible unresignation of Javad Zarif, the charismatic foreign minister of the Islamic Republic. To help me make sense of all this, back on the podcast yet again is Eli Meyer, who's the deputy head of our Middle East and North Africa program and supreme leader on all ECFR work uh, related to Iran and its role in the wider region. And also um, sitting next to Ellie in Istanbul is Kehan Bazagar, who is the director of the Institute for Middle East Strategic Studies in Iran. So why don't we start with this week's events ellie do you want to tell us what we know
1: so as of wednesday afternoon um the developments so far have been that iran's foreign minister unexpectedly at midnight um, on monday night basically posted a instagram page uh, a very personal message uh, whereby he essentially declared that he was resigning from his post um, and it was very much a message to the Iranian public. Uh, this led to significant uh, speculation uh, over the 24 hours that followed, uh, whether he was uh, formally resigning, whether a formal resignation letter had been handed, and whether that meant that he was truly leaving his post, given the protocol that's required for the acceptance of such a resignation within the Iranian system. And so what's transpired... Um, as of Wednesday, um, is that the foreign minister has been seen greeting uh, the Armenian prime minister who was visiting Tehran on an official visit. He was standing next to Iran's president and other members of the cabinet, and it looks like he's now uh, back in business. And this followed essentially 24 hours of political uproar um, inside Iranian media and political elites. And during that time, he was publicly backed as Iran's one and only foreign minister by President Rouhani, but also by uh, the IRGC commander Qasem Soleimani. Um, he received a majority of parliamentarian support uh, through a letter that was signed in parliament. And he's widely believed to be, uh, at least in private, supported by the Supreme Leader to carry on in his post. And I think the, the, the public backlash to his resignation also on social media and conventional media has also really helped strengthen um his position if he is indeed back in office as as widely perceived now um and given a, a somewhat stronger hand for Iran's foreign ministry in terms of its role in coordinating and shaping Iran's foreign policy uh, now what i should add is that um this uh, resignation um has followed um you know months of controversy surrounding uh minister zarif in terms of his ability to deliver on the nuclear deal that he negotiated and championed. He's under extreme domestic pressure uh, from opposition groups, who are opposed to um, the government's reform agenda, particularly in terms of joining a controversial um, roadmap uh, on the Financial Action Task Force, which is a necessity as far as Europeans are concerned in launching um, this SPV model uh, in a meaningful the way. The SPV is um, the
0: Special Purpose Vehicle. There'll be a lot of acronyms in this podcast for those of you who... Uh, um, Uh, But we'll try and make sense of them all as we go through. Carry on. Um,
1: The special purpose vehicle. And he's also um, uh, faced a lot of external pressure in terms of negotiations um, with uh, not just the Europeans, but also the Chinese and the Russians about delivering their side of the bargain on the nuclear deal, whereby Iran and I think Minister Zarif feels that the, the, the world's powers are not... Um, able to compensate for the U.S. withdrawal on the deal, and so he has to prove his case at home in very difficult circumstances. And finally, um, I think one of the issues that um, was a spark or a trigger for this resignation uh, message from Minister Zarif was a controversial um, setting for a meeting between President Rouhani and um, Assad, um, the um, Assad, who's who made a surprise visit from um, Damascus to Tehran, and he was um, seen in pictures with the supreme leader, and then in a separate meeting with President Rouhani, and sitting next to them was actually the the IRGC commander, and you know very much absent from the meeting was Iran's foreign minister. And I think that was a, a, a kind of straw that broke the camel's back in terms of the pressures that's been building up um, on the position of the foreign ministry. And so now in their vocal support for the foreign minister and his ministry, uh, there is a lot of attention inside Iran's domestic debate that, uh, particularly from the leadership elite, that um, the foreign ministry and Minister Zarif has a very critical role in shaping and making Iran's foreign policy.
0: And um Kehan, can you maybe talk a bit about because obviously for western audiences javad zavarif has been the face of iran um over the last few years was key figure in negotiating the jcpoa and um recasting iran's relationship with the united states when president obama was still in power and with europeans but how important is he within iran is he somebody who is, is visible and is kind of recognizable to the public or is is he more somebody for, for um, foreign external, for export rather than for domestic consumption?
2: Well, thank you, Mark. I think uh, uh, his resignation was an honest resignation and I think he's uh, already back. Uh, uh, we should understand that uh, the post-nuclear uh, uh, deal situation has been uh, difficult for the foreign Minister to handle the old sanctions and all the constraints that was pushed by uh, Western countries, especially the United States. So he had uh, some situations and I think uh, these situations uh, have put some pressures on, uh, uh, on his side uh, because he was uh, the, the person who get uh, to this deal. And he he has been trying to somehow uh, uh, convince the people the benefit of this deal. Uh, we should understand that uh, that the nuclear deal was the point of uh, uh, opening up uh, for Iran to the international community. And right now we have another theme in Iranian foreign policy that's Iran's uh, regional policy, and I think uh, this has some legitimacy in Iranian domestic politics that uh somehow connects to the, the the to uh to somehow uh being against the Trump's policy to somehow contain Iran in uh, the regional affairs and trying to limit Iran's uh missiles activity which is basically uh, relates to Iran's deterrent uh, uh power Therefore, uh, we have a new theme in the foreign policy, and this new theme has its own complexity. And I think uh, this complexity is connecting to Iran's domestic politics as well. So uh, we should understand that uh, this is a hard situation also for Iran.
0: Um, So maybe we can broaden out a little bit more and, and put these events in this kind of wider context. Um, on the eleventh of February, nineteen seventy-nine, just over forty years ago, the Shah's rule um, uh, 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 collapsed, and um, the uh, Islamic Revolution changed the face of Iran, um, and uh, has meant that Iran has not been a, a kind of normal regime in the region for, for much of this last period of time, because there was a a, a, a universal. Um, revolutionary ideology, which has both led to uh, a different kind of domestic politics and also uh, a foreign policy, which was in the service of of, uh, the Islamic revolution Um, and has meant that a lot of ideas about um, international relations have been developed within Iran over the last few decades. Um, But also, I think, has created a certain kind of revolutionary elite um, and also um had quite big implications for how the population responds to to revolution in 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 the uh, in the region. It's very striking talking to young Iranians how unrevolutionary they seem because um uh, it was their parents or their grandparents who were involved in bringing about this revolution and a lot of people have quipped that one of the the um the consequences of this sort of anti-American religious revolution has been to create a populace that is amongst the most secular, the most uh, Western-orientated, and the least revolutionary um, in the region. But it would be interesting to hear from the two of you, particularly also as you you kind of do um, span some of these generational questions as well. Ellie, you're um, obviously not the the revolutionary generation, but... (laughs) So, you might have a better insight as to how young iranians are are kind of thinking about the revolution forty years on i don't know who wants to to um to 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 start talking about what you think the the kind of long term consequences of the revolution are how much of it is still um uh relevant to understanding iran today
1: sure i I can maybe start off with some thoughts um I think there are, at least in in the modern, uh, the last 40 years' history of Iran, two very important um, events that continue to shape the way uh, both the revolution generation and the post-revolution generation think about uh, politics. I think one is obviously the revolution itself um, and the way that um, the politics um, came to be shaped in, in the constitutional process afterwards um which i think for different groups that took part in the, the revolution for some it met their expectations for others it didn't um secondly i think it's the iran iraq war that took the first you know um decade essentially of um uh, the post revolution time um to to resolve and that was a very difficult period that followed um uh, the revolution not just in terms of the casualties that iran um was faced with but also in terms of the big reconstruction efforts that had to follow the uh, the war and increasing degree of political isolation uh, particularly with the United States and what that meant in terms of Iran's broader political positioning and i think today um you know it's interesting that Iran's 40th year anniversary coincides with a Trump administration in the white house um that seems in practice, uh, you know, but although they haven't labelled as such, be pursuing a policy of regime change on Iran in terms of supporting um, domestic unrest, um, supporting opposition groups that are exiled um, from Iran. And I think for, for the young generation that's inside Iran, uh, they are, of course, frustrated with um, what they see as real shortcomings, both on the political um, space and, all the, and also the economic space. And they've there's been different sorts of protests regarding the situation for really the last 40 years. Um, but I think particularly the younger generation um, look at the example of, of their parents' re- uh, revolution um, and see the, the kind of unmet expectations of that process. Secondly, they look around themselves in the region, whether that's bordering Afghanistan and Iraq... Or Syria or Lebanon. And they see repeated, um, failed attempts at nation building, democratization, and also the, the, the failure of the Arab Spring in terms of bringing about any significant change in those countries, I think has left, um, many, particularly within the middle class, educated middle class, quite cautious of Pursuing this kind of path again, um, given that there's been such um, little evidence to show that it can succeed in terms of really changing their quality of life and 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 the political circumstances that they find themselves in, and third and finally, I would say that the position of the Trump administration has also made um, a lot of Iranians cautious that, despite their um, disgruntlement and opposition to the ruling elite in Iran, um, that they don't want to risk creating a situation in which, for example, an exiled group such as the MEK, which, let's not forget, have very good links to uh, folks inside the U.S. administration, like the National Security Advisor John Bolton, or President Trump's personal lawyer Giuliani, who was just meeting with the MEK in uh, in Warsaw a few weeks ago. They're, they see that these kind of relationships and the messaging that's coming up, from the White House, and they certainly don't want to go down a road where um, the current um, system is replaced by um, something of the likes of the MEK, which is something that's widely rejected inside the country.
0: Right. Okay. So, Kahan, you know, can you say a bit about how you see the the sort of long term um, consequences of the revolution in terms of how Iranians think about themselves? I mean, one of the interesting things to an external visitor to iran looking around in tehran or places like that is to notice how few people actually were even born at the time of the the revolution i think you know the the large majority of the population has been born since um 1979 and uh, a lot of the people who were born were very very young then so the the number of i think they're only um, five or six percent of the population that's over 65 years old so you know the the vast majority of people in in iran have been socialized since the revolution um how do they look at the revolution what are the kind of big ideas which came out of it which are still central for for iran and particularly it's foreign policy
2: yeah Uh, we know that every revolution has two aspects one is exporting itself and the second is preserving itself And I think uh, the day of exporting the revolution is somehow over and I think uh, the Iranian system is trying to adjust itself with the new situation it is a fact that every system uh, deconstruct itself when uh, a, a government changes and I think Uh, Right now, what is significant about Iran's uh, revolution is to keeping the state of Iran uh, uh, powerful in its borders and trying to uh, have a solid regional policy. And I think this is very significant in terms of uh, uh, dealing with this chaotic uh, regional situation. And uh, uh, we know that the the supreme leader of Iran just uh, a couple of days ago, uh, announced uh, a new statement that the revolution is going to a second wave second step which is more uh, uh focusing on the developmental approach of the revolution of course uh, we we had some constraints that ellie mentioned very well that this happened during the uh, the the past forty years but now we are uh, we are entering a new phase a new phase in in my belief that is uh uh, putting Iran towards more inward-looking, trying to count on itself, and trying to uh, somehow uh, enhance the sources of Iran's national power. And I think this is uh, this is important because there are a lot of expectations from the Iranian people from the revolution. And uh, if Iran could go uh, uh, to this track of uh, you know revolution, that is the developmental approach. Therefore we see that uh, we see a new uh, development in uh, in Iranian uh, outlook towards the world. What is important right now is this strategic decision by Iran to interact with the international community and trying to have good relations with uh, with western countries, eastern countries with a focus on uh, uh, on its regional aspects. And I think Trump's policy was bad in a sense that it has somehow increase the sense of insecurity from from the US uh, from the region. And I think this has complicated Iran's view of the US uh, and uh, b- b- its allies in the region that can somehow complicate I- Iran's uh, uh, regional policy somehow.
0: But in terms of the developmental agenda, you mean w- w- economic reform, liberalisation or... Are there other aspects that you're thinking about?
2: Yes, I mean this. I think uh, there are several aspects. I think there should be a kind of reform in the lengthy bureaucracy of Iran, some economic, to handle some economic uh, mismanagement, uh, aging ruling elites. We have a great deal of, uh, you know, uh, success the younger generation to come to power uh, in the shape of the government. So these are the things that uh, are going on inside Iran. And I think the Iranians are realizing that they need to count on uh, themselves and try to somehow create new definition of values and interests and looking to the world.
1: I would also maybe just add to that one of the key um, foundations for the revolution was addressing this issue of social inequality. And I think one thing that has happened over the last decades in Iran, which is not unique to Iran, and we've seen it in many countries, is this um, growth in social inequality and the gap, the wealth gap. Uh, between, you know, the 1%, the middle class being incredibly squeezed, and then a a growing working class. Um, And the protests that we saw in Iran, um, at the end, tail end of 2017, and beginning of 2018, I think was coming majority from that working class group, um, who, who did traditionally um, form the, the the foundations and the basis for the revolution, and I think that was a, a wake up call um, for the the ruling system that they need to do more to to at least help alleviate the economic frustrations of that class um, inside Iran. That's not a it's not a minority; it's actually probably a growing group um, across the board.
0: And how, to what extent is that exacerbated by the fact that you have this sort of bifurcated? Politics and bifurcated economy, with um, both the kind of state and then also religious elites that are not just important political actors and have their kind of parallel structures for everything, but are also uh, important economic actors as well.
1: Look, this th- this is clearly a problem in terms of um, it, it might not just be a separation between the uh, the clerical establishment and the government, that's the electoral branch, but also the way that. Um, other groups such as, um, the IRGC in Iran operate in the, in the economic sphere. And that was one of the areas that actually in his first term, Rouhani did very openly try to tackle. And I think that one of the things that has made that process so difficult has actually been the reimposition of US sanctions that have completely sidetracked that project. Um, towards basically a survival crisis management mode in the country. And if we look back at the, the period where there was the, the, the strongest economic sanctions in Iran, uh, both at UN, US and EU level um, in the run up to the 2013 start of the negotiations over the nuclear issue, um, that was a period of time where there was an incredible amount of, um, you know, shadow economy emerging in Iran, uh, corruption uh, became very rampant. And part of the problem there was the sanctions economy that was created. And the fact that there needed to be you know, black market routes to evade US sanctions, which created a lot of wealth and power in the hands of the very few. Now, there was a project underway after the nuclear deal to try and really address this. But unfortunately, I think with the US withdrawal and the reposition of sanctions, that project will be delayed for some time.
0: Kahan, you were talking a lot about the region, I mean, about these two pillars. So, both the sort of ec- the second wave of the revolution in terms of the economic reform and delivering on, on this promise of social justice internally, but also the regional politics. How much of the regional agenda which Iran has now is driven by kind of revolution and revolutionary consciousness, and how much of it is um, just a sort of classic realist? agenda trying to create a forward line of defense in a region that's um that's quite unstable
2: i think iran like every state in the region has its own geopolitical interests some analysis perhaps in the western or uh, regional countries believe that iran's uh, track of policy is expansionist but i believe that uh, this is not the way it is looked at inside iran what uh, what is being called expansion is we call regional tackling the regional problem therefore uh but b- the reactions of iran through the regional politics in a way to preserve its geopolitical interest and it is interesting to know that how iran has uh, tried to adjust itself with the regional geopolitical uh, changes and we should uh, accept the fact that the regional problems has brought at at the same time for iran a lot of uh insecurity as well you know uh the the terrorist activities the hostile uh, states trying to fill the power vacuum which could be you know at the expense of iran these are the uh these are the problems that are being uh uh, uh calculated by iran in a way to uh, not uh, endangering its uh its uh, its security i think uh, iran is thinking thinking that every power vacuum in the region will be at the expense of Iran. Therefore, Iran should be proactive in a normal way, trying to somehow establish friendly states and trying to have good relations with the, the friendly political forces inside the region so that it can tackle the threats that, from Iran's perspective, are urgent.
0: And how's that going beyond thinking about the relationship with, with Syria and with Russia Um, This idea of of finding friendly states, Um, Qatar, uh, I mean, what what are the the friendly states that
2: have been uh, turned? I think these states are being convinced that, you know, Iran has its own legitimate concerns and interests. I think the logic of Iran's Russia relations is a simple logic, and that logic is that Russia... Uh, uh, Russia is convinced that Iran has concerns, something that Western countries do not accept. And this simple logic has put Iran's Russia relations in a good situation. The Russians think that Iran has uh, some kind of geopolitical interest in Syria, in Iraq, in Lebanon... Therefore, it should address these concerns, and that's why uh, Iran's uh, legitimate role is accepted by Russia. And we see that this has been translated in the Astana process or other regional setting. Therefore, it depends how much the other party can accept the Iranian regional role and and uh, and expectations from the regional politics.
1: And I just add to that question that you asked, Mark, that. You know, beyond Russia and Syria, um, obviously Iran has very um, good relations with its big neighbor, Iraq. Um, There is a new Iraqi government and a big delegation from Tehran visited various parts of Iraq, spoke to all sorts of political factions in the country, uh, together with a big trade delegation. And actually, Iraq is one of the countries in this um, sanctions environment that Iran finds itself that could actually play a helpful role for Iran another country again in the region that Iran has tried to mend ties with and and create better political relations with is Turkey and of course they had an upset in their relationship uh because of the differences over Syria but now they find themselves as you know th- two of three main players in in Syria and they they're sitting at the table through the Astana process and negotiating the political terms to to end the conflict and again Turkey plays a very significant role in Iran's future trade outlook um, in the region.
0: So one other thing which we should maybe talk about is something which you both mentioned in different ways is the relationship with the US. I mean in many ways the U.S. was one of the, the founding nations of the Iranian revolutionary um, spirit and one of the founding myths of, uh, of the republic um, was about recasting the relationship with the U.S., the siege of the, the U.S. embassy. And the great Satan obviously played a huge role in legitimating um, Iran internally and in working out Iran's role in the region. Then um, under Obama, the U.S. seemed to become much less uh, important as, as the kind of enemy of choice. Saudi Arabia seemed to become a much more important um, rival. And the the conflict with Saudi Arabia seemed in many ways to take on a lot of the legitimating spirit which the U.S. had had beforehand. How has Trump's ascent into the White House and his uh, attempts to contain Iran Change that dynamic.
2: Uh, I I I think uh, it is important to understand that what is the intention of the U.S. in dealing with Iran? There is this growing tendency amongst the Iranian, both in the government and the public, that the U.S. problems problems with Iran is not just the government of Iran, it is with the state of Iran and with the nation of Iran trying to decrease Iran's regional role to the extent that Iran is reclaiming its position in the regional, you know, uh, 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 politics in a way. And I think this is very important to be recognized by the U.S. government. And Trump's policy is just only uh, further complicated the situation in Iranian mind, as I mentioned, this sense of insecurity was supposed to be removed from the nuclear deal so that the the ways to be paved for further regional cooperation uh, to to get to the, uh, the 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 real place of the west in iranian politics but unfortunately the situation went in a wrong way and we have the trump's policy of maximum pressure which uh, in its term is very ideological and culturally does not connect with the Iranian politics and public. And I think this is very important uh, to understand that how the Iranians are perceiving the U.S. R- role in decreasing Iranian geopolitical interests, and at the same time uh, somehow to intervening in Iranian domestic affairs when it goes to uh, w- w- showing this policy of maximum pressure Uh, with the hope of collapsing the state of Iran or weakening the Iranian economy. I think this is uh, perceived by the Iranian in a very negative way and they're losing their trust on the U.S. government's intentions on what is the purpose and aims of the U.S. dealing with the Iranian nation. So we are, we are dealing with a new phenomenon by the Trump's policy and that phenomenon is a negative Uh, you know, picture of the U.S. that is being growing inside the Iranian politics.
1: What I might add to that is that um, I actually disagree with the notion that Iran shifted in terms of its risk perception from the U.S. to um, Saudi Arabia. I think that predominantly um, the United States and its presence in the region and its uh, pretty consistent containment policy through the last four decades has been Iran's uh, first and foremost um, strategic priority in terms of dealing with that and the perceived threat that comes with that U.S. stance. And secondly, also would be the position of Israel in the region. And then I think that Saudi Arabia and and the, the differences between Iran and the other Arab countries probably falls after the, those two um, key issues that have shaped Iran's foreign policy, particularly in the region, uh, for, for the last few decades. Now, what Trump, the Trump administration, has done uh, with the the you know the violation of its commitments of U.S. commitments under the nuclear deal has basically strengthened the hands of those parts of Iran's leadership that have argued since the revolution that you can't trust the United States, that the United States will uh, you know ultimately seek regime change in Iran and will not accept Iran's legitimate place um, in the regional order. The the exception to that uh, viewpoint was essentially under the Obama uh, years, where there was this um, periodic moment of engagement and dialogue and diplomatic outreach with Iran. But now, with the U.S. um, reverse of course, I think there's this growing perception in Iran that whether you have a Republican or a Democrat in the White House, that the U.S. will really never accept the Islamic Republic of Iran as it stands now. I think that there are some voices in the political leadership in Iran that are cautioning um, the the establishment to continue abiding by the nuclear agreement, to keep uh, Europe on board, on side with Iran on this issue, and to see where the elections in the US in 2020 um, could possibly take US policy on Iran. Now, obviously, if Trump is reelected, elected um, that will present a, a whole other um, uh, series of challenges for Iran. Uh, but if there is a uh, a more progressive uh, position emerging on, for example, returning the U.S. back into the JCPOA, um, it could create some interesting opportunities uh, for eventually further engagement between Iran and the United
0: States. Okay, I think we're almost out of time, but maybe given that this is the European Council on Foreign Relations, I can ask you both a final question, which is about, about Europe. And maybe, Kehan, you can tell me first, how, how do... Iranians feel about Europe now um, and Europe's attempts at trying to keep the, the JCPOA, the, the, the Iran nuclear deal, alive? Do people have much hope that the SPV that we talked about earlier, the special purpose vehicle, which is designed to, to help um, maintain economic activity in the face of secondary sanctions from the United States, uh, could actually work?
2: I think from Iran's perspective, keeping Europe is important. Uh, first of all, politically, because this is uh, somehow a strengthen Iran's chain of interacting with the international community with China, Russia, Turkey, India. So it's more political matter for Iran to keep Europe around itself to somehow manage its international relations. Therefore. I I don't think that there are that much expectations economically from the U.S. financial system right now. And to be honest, I think Iran is counting on itself. And it is sometime that Iran is uh, focusing on a regional connectivity to manage its economy on a national production, and at the same time integrating its economy with the regional and neighborhood countries, with Iraq, Syria, Turkey, India, or Russia. And to some extent, I think China is also important. Uh, therefore, uh, but, uh, but Europe's movement inside Iran is there, and it is for political terms. It is not that, uh, you know, that uh, uh, traditional way of, uh, you know, economic exchanges with Europe is the priority of Iran. I think there is a course of change in Iranian understanding of economic uh, uh, approach and that uh, understanding is based on the value and potentials of regionalism in Iranian understanding therefore we should we should expect more uh, 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 regional connectivity and trying to uh, strengthen relations with uh, neighborhood countries and at the same time keeping good relations with europe because the logic of uh, relations increased relations with europe is strong inside iran especially with the fact that europe is trying to keep uh, the nuclear deal, and at the same time supports iranian uh international interactions uh, you know efforts
0: so I think that's um come take up take us almost to the end of our time. i know ellie's got to run off to the airport quite soon to to leave istanbul um so maybe we can just do one more thing before you both uh go, which is to uh talk about our bookshelf segment and and what we're reading at the moment or Maybe in this context, what would be worth reading to understand Iran more deeply? So, um, Ellie, do you want to go first?
1: I'll I'll tell you two. One, um, the book that I have just finished reading is, um, uh, you know, the very popular Michelle Obama book on Becoming, which I found a very good read over January. Um, And then a a, a book, uh, two books that I would um, recommend on um, Iran um, one is a uh, a novel called Re- Reading Lolita from Tehran, which is just it gives you a good sense of um the the discussions in Iranian families post revolution etc um and another one uh which is a very comprehensive um overview of Iran post revolution and um the intricacy of, of the politics and that's a book called let the swords encircle me um that takes you up from the revolution to um 2009 um green movement um inside Iran
0: Right.
2: What about you, Kehan? Honest, I ha- I didn't have the time to read books. I I, I read articles and, and see movies. But I have seen good movies about uh, the regions. For instance, the Insult from Lebanon. Good movies about Iran. Good movies about you know Afghanistan and other things. But uh, do
0: you want to mention one or two movies which people could watch?
2: And one, it was Insult which is about Lebanese politics. This was very interesting, and I saw another movie about uh, the story about Bosnia-Herzegovina's war. It was called, I think, um, uh, Man's uh, No Line, something that is uh, mentioning about the a story of the Bosnian war, which was very interesting.
0: Great. And while we're on the subject of movies, I'd like to to recommend one which uh, Ellie, in fact, uh, recommended to me a long time ago, which is one of my favourite Iranian movies, which is um, fittingly enough called About Ellie.
1: And actually his other film, A Separation, uh, which won the Oscar, uh, does also give you a very good insight into contemporary life inside Iran.
0: Indeed. So that brings this fascinating discussion to an end. If you've enjoyed listening to the podcast, please do let your friends and family and colleagues and acquaintances know about it by tweeting about it, writing about it on your Facebook page or ours. But above all, by rushing to your uh, platform, which you use to download this from um, iTunes or Spotify or whatever it is you're listening to us on. And give us a rating and a review because that will help other people discover the podcast. We'll put links up to all the publications we mentioned on our website at www.ecfr.eu slash podcasts. But for now, from Ellie Guerin-Meyer, Kehan Barzagar, and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of ECFR's podcast is Jonathan hagen and our editor is Katarina (laughs) Botel-Azinaro.